Hello, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv, the Tuesday edition, where we talk about Bible topics and discussions and answer people's questions. And before I get too far into it, before I forget, I want to remind everybody that's uh, either watching us on YouTube or through the uh, Zoom app, please send us your questions. Uh, use the text box if you want, if you can. Uh, or if you're using the Zoom app and you're coming in live on that channel, you can call in. You can use your audio, computer audio, if you want. I'll leave that up to you. So let's see. We got Stephen here. Hey, Stephen. Good to see you again. Hey, Drew. Welcome, everybody. Good to see you. And Scott, we have Scott down in Gettysburg. Scott is our program director. How you doing, Scott? Doing well, Drew. How are you doing today? Did I say that right? Gettysburg, right? Well, I'm actually eight miles out of Gettysburg. Okay, I refer to Gettysburg because that's where you, you preach at the church in Gettysburg. Sorry. And, and Stephen, do you live in Harrisburg? We live just outside Harrisburg in Camp Hill, though we're only about three or four miles from the city. Okay, so I'm up in Honesdale. I preach here at the church in Honesdale, but I'm not outside the city. In fact, I'm two blocks away from in Honesdale, downtown. Honesdale. So you are in metropolitan downtown skyscraper part of Honesdale. Uh, if you consider four-story building skyscrapers, yep, that's it. <laughs> and of course, Jonathan is also here with us, our webcast engineer. Jonathan, glad you're here taking care of everything on the back end and also participating with your comments. Yeah, it's always good to be here. Okay, and no one commented on my, oh, I still got to stop this screen screen. But you notice, guys, the new screen share thing I got up there? That little video thing going? The balloon is moving and the birds are flying. Yeah, there you go. Set it at static image. Okay, so here we go. Let's get into the to the topic. So, Stephen, you want to take it away with reading our first question? What do we have today? Sure. So today, our first question comes in from Holly, who asks, Second Peter 3, verse 10, says the heavens will pass away with a great noise when Jesus comes back. Does this mean the planets and solar systems, stars, moon, or is this everything physical that we know? Thanks. Thank you for your question, Holly. Uh, best thing to do, of course, is to first go and read the passage. We're in Second Peter chapter 3. And uh, a good bit of this chapter is taken up with uh, this discussion, this question uh, that Peter's bringing up about the coming judgment of God. And uh, let's look and start back in verse 8, 2 Peter 3, verse 8. Holly's question comes from verse 10. We'll pick up and read, reading in verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So that's the text itself, and uh, the question comes in about uh, what exactly is going to happen at the end uh, with all these things. The descriptions we have here in verse 10, 
or that the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I don't know how much variation we have among our versions today. Uh, and down in verse 12, he talks about uh, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. The heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Um, so we clearly have some destruction language going on here. And I think it's helpful as we approach any kind of question like this that has to do with what's going to happen at the end uh, to just kind of taking a step back before we get into the details of this uh, to think about the big picture of uh, trying to see into the future as to what God is going to do. Um, in the past, God spoke through his prophets in the old Testament about what was going to come with the Messiah and the messianic age and how, how accurate was the picture in the Jews mind when, when Jesus came onto the scene and things started happening to fulfill the prophets? Uh, was that exactly what they were expecting? Not at all. I mean, they were expecting a king and Jesus is a king, but there are lots of ways where they were taking passages uh, miss, they were missing points, uh, like uh, the importance of Isaiah 53, although some thought there were maybe going to be two messiahs, one a suffering messiah, one a kingly messiah, taking a lot of things literally that end up not being literal and stuff. So their perception um, ends up being highly inaccurate. I like the way it's described in Second Peter chapter 1. It says... In verse 19, we have the word of prophecy made more sure, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in our hearts. So it says there was a lamp shining in a dark place, but then when Christ came, things are illuminated. Uh, similarly, there are some details about uh, the last day the Bible gives a lot of details, but there are questions that we might not know. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, what kind of body are we going to have? Paul says, the grain that you sow isn't the same thing that comes up. Something else is going to come up. And then he ends up saying it's going to be a spiritual body. Not flesh and blood, but a spiritual body. So what can I tell about it? Not a whole lot. I mean, it's going to be different, and it's yeah. going to be better. <laughs> he talks yeah. about being incorruptible. Immortal instead of mortal. It's not going to be flesh and blood. Will it be spiritual? Yes. Will it be a body? Yes. Exactly what will it be? Wait and see. There you go. Yeah. Wait and see. Yeah. And, and so it's really helpful as we just step back. Anytime we start to ask questions about, well, what specifically is going to happen? Are Saturn and Jupiter going to burn up at the end. That's the way I, I have read this passage, but I try to be careful uh, with how firmly I state these things. I think it's helpful when we don't know to do our best to stick to the biblical language, uh, to use the words and phrases that the Bible uses. Um, it does talk about the heavenly bodies uh, being burned up and dissolved. Um, if, if the end comes and that's what turns out happening is the solar system and the stars and uh, the cosmos itself is, is burned up with fire. I, I won't be surprised by that. If this means something else that also has to do with the destruction of the current heavens and earth, uh, that means something different. And maybe uh, I I don't know in what different way uh, 
I'm okay with that. Uh, the, the Lord, that's his business. And um, we want to do our best to understand scripture, but we would do well with a healthy dose of humility. Here's, here's a couple of things too. In second Peter three, it talks about the future destruction with fire and compares it to the past destruction with what element? With water in the days of Noah. And that was a very literal destruction with water. And so the heavens were from old and an earth compacted out of water and amidst water by the word of God. And of course, you recall at the time of the flood, where did the water come from? Beneath the surface of the earth, primarily, and also from the the, the windows of heaven. Right. So the fountains of the great deep and the rain for 40 days. So it was compacted out of water and amidst water by the word of God, which by means the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. And literal water. The heavens that now are and the earth by the same word have been stored up for fire. And my Bible, the American Standard, uh, has a footnote there that it could be translated stored up with fire, being reserved against the day of judgment, destruction of ungodly men. And then it says, The day of the Lord will come as a thief, the heavens will pass away with the great noise, elements shall be dissolved with the fervent heat, the earth and works that are there and be burned up. I'm inclined to take that just like before you had the fountains of the deep with water to help destroy the earth. Uh, we know if you start burrowing down into the earth, is it a cold rock center down there? No, it's a lot of heat. Yeah, a lot of heat. And so I would envision that if this translation is correct, where it says that stored up for fire could be translated stored with fire that you could have the fire from within there. But I don't, you know, if, if I say I know exactly how it's going to be, uh, that, that wasn't, they don't, they didn't have a real good track record in the old Testament of looking forward. And so it is helpful though. We might think, I think this is what it's going to be stick with what the text says. You know, think about what it might mean, but not be too presumptuous in deciding that our perception of that text is everything and all there is to know about it. Yeah. And, and one other possible parallel is, if I remember correctly, uh, in the Old Testament, we don't read about rain until the story of Noah. There used to be a mist that went up from the earth. And it could have been that they hadn't seen any kind of destruction on that level, uh, like a flood or things like that. And so when we try to envision how, what's going to happen, as perhaps they didn't really have a precedent in their own mind as to, oh, it's going to be like this we may not have a real good idea of, of what that's going to be like when fire devours this current heavens and earth. Here's another thing too. We can get kind of arrogant and presumptuous down here and think that what we do is really important and what we've done is immovable and that type of thing. But just to real, like for instance, the earth being burned up, I can envision somebody thinking, but it's not flammable. Dirt is not flammable. Rocks are not flammable. I mean, you know, maybe the trees could burn up, but how could you burn up the earth? I want to show you a picture. Um, this is, let me find share screen. Ah, okay. I'm on a new computer and I don't see share screen. So, oh wait, yeah, there it is. There it is. All right. So take a look at this. If I can get it. Well, I can't. Maybe one of you guys can pull up a picture that shows the size of the earth compared to the size of the sun. 
I had one, but now I can't find it. If I'm not mistaken, I think I read somewhere it's about a millionth of the size. Of the yeah, size. it's really interesting to look at it visually. <clears throat> yeah, I can do that really quick. Huh. Oh, there you go. Is that Scott? I don't know if it's me or not. Yeah, that's yeah. You're Scott, you're sharing your screen. Ah, here we go. There it is. Can everybody see that shot right there? Uh, it's coming movie, up. Man. Okay, there is the Earth compared to the size of the sun. Yeah. So God's pretty capable of having a great source of fire to do whatever he wants to do. If, if, if he, it's, just putting that together, should anybody wonder if the Earth could be consumed with fire? No, <laughs> that's, uh, that's entirely possible. Yeah. Yeah, and then there's going to be a new heavens, a new earth. Well, you know, the, the, the first time, new heavens and new earth, I mean, the next earth after the flood was still the same round ball, but it had been covered with, is it just going to be scorched? Is it going to be complete? Is it, you know, uh, everything on it is all, you know, the, the, let's stick with what the text says, and some of it may be completely literal, some of it may be somewhat figurative, and not presume too much beyond that. Yeah, there's, there's a, the uh, a verse there towards the end of all that discussion in Second Peter, I think, which has more importance placed upon it, or maybe we're not placing as much importance on it as we should, because Peter says in verse eleven of Second Peter three says, "Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, that's interesting. They are to be dissolved." What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? So the, the intriguing, mysterious drama part of it is about the heavens burning and dissolving. But I think the point is that's more important is, since these are going to happen, yes. what should we be doing? That's yeah. absolutely right. It is is the point is whatever is going to happen, the way that we know things to be is going to come to an end. Yeah, and that's the bottom line. It's going to be destroyed. If you're laying up treasures for yourself here, if the things that you are focused on in this life are the physical things in this world, your power, your preeminence, whatever, your riches, is going to burn up. It's, it's going to be destroyed. I think that's Peter's main point is that just like in Noah's day, People said, oh, God's judgment isn't coming. Ah, it's not coming. And then it came. And just Noah and his family were saved. Well, there's another day of judgment coming. And we need to be ready for that day by leading lives of holiness and godliness. And, you know, the fact that it hasn't happened is people, you know, mock. And Peter talks about that. But in verse 9, it says that the Lord's not slow about his promise, but he's patient toward us not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Uh, the reason that the earth hasn't been destroyed yet is because God is being patient with us. And so we need to count that as a blessing. This, this world is still here, this current heavens and earth. And um, we would do well to think about the coming day of judgment. We don't know when that's going to be, but we need to work to be ready for it. This may not be part of the question, but there's a, in, in that right after that verse, Stephen, Verse 10, Peter says that the day of the Lord, will, this day that we're talking about, will, will come like a thief, right? Mm -hmm. That plays out to those people that try to predict when the end is coming. 
Yeah. He knows when is when when that day is coming. He's when he comes. It's like you know you're not expecting a thief to come in, so you never know when that's going to happen. That's right. And 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 Christianity gets a lot of flack because of all of the different predictions and of course failed predictions that have all happened. We don't know when it's going to be. Um, it's like a thief in the night, but uh, that means that we need to be ready today because we don't know how long we have. A couple of other passages. And of course, Revelation is, of course, very, very symbolic and figurative. Uh, but just to note what it says, and then we'll also take a quick look at First Thessalonians 4. In Revelation 20, after describing the day of judgment, it says, death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death in the lake of fire, if anyone was not found written in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. Chapter 21, verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, same language as in Second Peter, for the first heaven and the first earth are passed away, and the sea is no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And then there's this glorious picture of the New Jerusalem with the uh, gates, you know, made of, per- of a pearl and the foundation stones and the streets of transparent gold and everything. Also, Second Thessalonians 4, let's just read this. First Thessalonians 4? First, yes, thank you, thank you. First Thessalonians 4, where it says, not to sorrow concerning the Christians who have already died, uh, verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we that are alive, that are left unto the coming of the Lord, shall in no wise precede them that are fallen asleep. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we that are alive, that are left, shall together with them be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So these are some of the different descriptions and pictures of what happens. Wait, wait a minute, Scott. Uh, you're reading that, right? And it, it yes. doesn't say that the Lord is ever going to touch the earth when he comes back. No, it doesn't say that. Well, where, where, do, where did I hear that from? Well, in premillennialism, you have the second coming happens twice, or maybe they call it, it's a third coming for them. They think Jesus is going to come there. They would say this is not his final coming uh, there in uh, Thessalonians, which they don't have grounds for saying that, but that's what they believe. And then the Christians will be raised and go up, but everybody else will stay. They go up, they spend seven years with him, and then he comes down and rules on earth for a thousand years. And they take that from, they misinterpret that from Revelation 20. And I don't want to get off into that, but I'll just notice, let's just notice two things about Revelation 20. Again, it's a symbolic book. I don't know what everything in Revelation chapter 20 means, but two questions. Does Revelation 20 describe when Jesus begins ruling? And does it describe Jesus on earth? So the answer to question one, in Revelation 20, it says it's the only place where it mentions this thousand-year period that premillennials talk about. Um, in Revelation 20, it says that's where the martyred saints reign, begin reigning with Jesus. But where in the book of Revelation did Jesus begin reigning? Chapter 12. Yeah, yeah, chapter 12. 
made it very clear. You go back, look there at verse 9, 10, 11, and uh, in that context, that's when he began. Now has come the kingdom and the authority of the Christ. Then later, his martyred saints reign with him. So it's not saying this is when Jesus begins his reign. And then lastly, does Revelation 20 mention Jesus being on earth? Yeah, so this idea of taking that thousand-year period and making it be when Jesus begins to reign on earth, it's got Jesus, and it's gotten a thousand years where somebody does something, but it's not where Jesus begins reigning on earth. It's not the beginning of his reign, and it doesn't say he does it on earth. Yeah. So do they talk about, in that theory that you're talking about, do they mention anything about the, the heavens and earth being melted in, in any of those millennialist uh, They don't think that happens at the rapture. They don't think that happens when Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation. Uh, they would put that down, these passages, they would put down, uh, Revelation 20, they would put down to something after the thousand-year period is over. Interesting. Uh, I like coming back to that end of first Thessalonians four, where it says, and so we will always be with the Lord. Um, it says, we're going to be with those who've gone before and we're going to be with the Lord. Yeah. And that's really the main thing is whatever the nature of the new heavens and new earth is, uh, whatever the nature of the end of this heavens and earth is, we want to be with those who love the Lord and we want to be with the Lord. Uh, I've sometimes heard it talked about how our songs about heaven get kind of enamored and focused on the mansion and the streets yes. and singing and lots of things. And it would be a little bit like if you were talking with someone who was going to get married and you got to talking with them and you said, what, you know, what are you looking forward to? And they say, Oh, the house we're going to live in is just amazing. It's got this room and that room. And, oh, we're going to have this huge TV and it's got a swimming pool out back and, Oh, and oh, and the neighbors, the neighbors are wonderful. There's going to be our friends are going to be right next door. It's going to be great. And, and you know, we're going to, and, and, and what's, what's missing from that? You're, you're getting married. You want to be with the person that you love. And, and sometimes if we get a little too fixated on the details of where and how and different things, we're going to be with the Lord. And that is the main thing. Uh, there, there's a hymn that I came across one time that is called Lord. It belongs not to my care, but the last verse of that song says, in, in talking about what is to come, uh, my knowledge of that life is small. The eye of faith is dim, but tis enough that Christ knows all and I shall be with him. And I like the way that sums it up nicely. Yes. Yes. And just to think about this a little further, I don't expect literal transparent gold streets. Um, but if we got there and there were streets made of literal transparent gold, is anybody going to complain? No. Right. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Uh, on the other hand, Bill Gates has enough money that he could pave some section of street with gold. I don't know how many miles he could do it, but would that make it have no, not at all. And so the, the, the being with God and the being reunited um, and all the blessings there, uh, one other way to look at it is this. A number of passages describe the fate of the wicked as a place of fire. But in Matthew 22, it describes 
the unfaithful or the unworthy being cast out into the outer darkness, outer darkness, or either of those places you would want to be. No. Right, right. Anything else on this topic before we move to our next one? That's all I got. All right. Let's move on to our next topic. Before you do, though, just let me remind everybody, if you're watching on YouTube, we want you to type in any questions or comments that you want to add to the conversation or things you want us to talk about. If you're on the app, do the same thing with the Q&A box, and uh, we look forward to getting more questions from everybody. You know what? There is, this might be helpful, so let me take just a minute to do this because it, it might help somebody. When we're talking about things beyond our experience, a good way to realize what some of it might be like is this. All, all four of us have our five senses. We can see, we can touch, we can smell, et cetera, et cetera. Suppose one of us doesn't. Suppose I am blind and I've been blind my entire life. I was born blind. It's not that I have limited vision. I am totally 100% blind. And then I ask you guys, and I said, Drew, Stephen, Jonathan, what is blue? What is yellow? What is color? Well, the only thing I could say is, have you had any blueberries, Scott? Have you tasted the blue? Do you like the blueberries? So blue is squishy, wet, and sweet. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes. Yeah, yeah, sometimes it is. But notice what you did. You went to something that is blue, but you went to something I can experience with other senses. Now, suppose you tried to give me a mathematical description of blue. Scientific, how would you scientifically or mathematically describe blue? Oh, it's always everyone knows it's 0.0137. Okay, all right. And so, it's a wavelength, it's a particular, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, I hear somebody say, Oh, that is a really you know, pretty blue dress. What's pretty about it? Well, you know, the, the pigmentation that's reflected happens to be 0.0137. Does that do anything for me at all? Nothing, no. nothing. But like you with the blueberries, you went to taste. If, if I say yellow is butter melting on your tongue, yellow is feeling the sun on your arm, gray is a rainy day, you know, blue is children splashing in the water. That's, and, and you say colors are like flavors. That's giving me something to understand why are those things going to be more meaningful to me than giving me a technical description that I can't experience because you don't experience that sense, you do experience the other ones. Right, right. And so, descriptions of life beyond this realm, if God gave us absolute scientific mathematical descriptions of it, it might not, you know, you know but it's described in terms that we can relate to. Exactly. Okay. So we'll go ahead, Scott. Where were you going with that second? What was that second question? Uh, what was your next question? It had to do with relationships. Yeah. yeah. So this is a uh, shortened version of a question from Nathan. He uh, talks about uh, how can we recover in a relationship where one has sinned against another? Uh, sometimes when one repents, there's time for rejoicing. But for instance, if a spouse is learning about sin, it's being repented of, it's still not going to be anywhere near happy. 
and uh, we might talk about the difference between uh, forgiveness and rebuilding trust in relationships where one person's hurt another person. Yes. So let's start with forgiveness. Um, there's a challenging passage on forgiveness in Luke 17. Somebody read that for us. Luke 17, 1 through 3. Luke 17, starting in verse 1, this is Jesus speaking. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So, Luke so, 17, one through four. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for getting the extra version there. So if I sin against Jonathan, Jonathan's job is to do what? Rebuke Yeah, yeah. And if I say, you're right, Jonathan, I'm sorry, uh, I repent. That's what I need to do. Now, what does Jonathan need to do? Forgive. Yeah. And about 30 minutes later, I do it again. I rebuke you again. <laughs> and I say, Jonathan, I'm really sorry. I apologize. Will you forgive me? I repent. I forgive you. <laughs> okay. Hour and a half later, I do it again. Come on, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, three strikes, you're out. Three strikes, exactly. We, we, we get, and I think that's kind of what's going on where Peter, perhaps think about this statement, says the Lord, now, how many times do I forgive my brother? It's seven. <laughs> and and uh, Jesus answers and says what? Not seven, but? 70 times seven. 70 times seven. Ah! We don't like that. We like to stop forgiving. But what do we want God to do for us? Forgiveness. So you need that forgiveness sometimes more than seven times a day. And, and, and that's why go ahead. That's why in this, in this same telling in, in Matthew 18, you, you alluded to it a little bit. Whenever Peter brings up this question, Jesus answers the question, how many, Peter says, how many times do I forgive my brother in a day? Seven times. And kind of like you were saying, you can kind of picture Peter like that righteous feeling like, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I, I haven't just forgiven him once or twice or even three times. I've forgiven seven times. And that seemed, that's a big number in one day. And Jesus yeah. up the bigger number and seven, I can stop this business. You know, yeah. we're up to yeah. five. Yeah. And he tells that story. And it's interesting when you go to Matthew 18 and you read through the story, if you compare it to, to what Peter's question was, it's almost as if Jesus is telling the story directly to Peter to identify him as the first servant. And so there's that, there's that feeling that you get, you, you, you kind of sympathize with the second servant and the story rather than the first servant. Um, whenever Jesus tells of the unforgiving servant, um, and, go ahead. We'll go ahead. Somebody quickly tell the story of the two servants. We're running a little short on time, so somebody make it quick. But somebody might not be familiar with that story. Somebody relate that for us quick. From Matthew chapter 18, uh, 23 followers. Somebody just kind of sum it up. Yeah, so there was a servant who owed 10,000 talents um, to, a, uh, to a king, which is about 20 years worth. Uh, or, or 20,000 years worth of wages, I think. It was just a, an impayable uh, amount. And he begged for forgiveness whenever the debt was required of him. And the king, because the servant begged, he allowed him to be forgiven of all the debt. And so the servant went out 
forgiven of his debt to another servant who owed him much less money. Uh, and he choked him and threatened him and told him to repay everything. And the second servant likewise said, you know, I don't have it. I, I can't repay you. Please be patient with me and I'll repay you. And rather than showing mercy, the first servant throws him in prison. Uh, word spreads. The king finds out what this unmerciful man has done. And he calls him out and he says, basically, I forgave you. You also ought to have had mercy on this servant. Uh, now, because you had no mercy, you're going to have to pay everything that you owed me. And the first servant is thrown in prison. And then yeah. Jesus ends that by saying uh, in verse uh, chapter 18 of Matthew and verse 35. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So we are to forgive. If we want forgiveness from God, we absolutely have to forgive others. Give me just two or three other verses that tie the idea of our being forgiven uh, subject to whether or not we forgive others. Well, that's exactly what Jesus told us to pray, right? In, in Matthew chapter 6, in a Sermon on the Mount, uh, you know, our Father who's in heaven, and in that prayer, uh, he says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Yeah. And when he finishes giving the instruction about prayer, he comes back to that in Matthew six fourteen. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And that's a chilling statement of yeah. Jesus. To stand before God unforgiven should scare us to death. Yes. And so whenever we're wanting to, I don't want to forgive, we're, we're, we're basically saying, I don't want to be forgiven. But we want to be forgiven, but not wanting to forgive will not work. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So we have to forgive. Well, Scott, you had said we don't want to forgive, but I think it's more, I can't forgive. So how do you deal with that when someone's, when, when I say, I just can't let it go. I can't forgive. How do I... Give me the mechanics on that. How do I overcome that? Yes, we can forgive. And one reason is because when we feel that we can't forgive, who are we focusing on? Ourselves. Ourselves. Yes. yes. We may also be misunderstanding forgiveness and what, what that really means. Because there's times where you can forgive somebody, and that doesn't mean that you get warm fuzzies the next time you see them. It doesn't mean that suddenly everything in your heart and mind goes back to the way it was before and you don't ever think about it again. But forgiveness has to do with fixing the relationship. It also has to do with how you choose to treat that person going forward. And everyone, forgiveness is a decision that we make. It's not a feeling that we feel. And, and in answer to the question, what can we do? When we think, I can't forgive, we're focused on what they did to us. I can't forgive them. And if they did something to us, we might be viewing them as a what? An enemy. What did Jesus say do about your enemies? Love your, your enemies. Pray for them. Love your enemies and pray for them. When you pray for your enemy, do you notice how it changes how you feel about them? Yes. Yeah. When, so... When we are saying, I can't forgive, it's because we're focused on who? Self. When we are praying for our enemy, who are we focused on? The other person. The other person. So do I want that person to go to hell forever? Do I want, if they've been selfish, do I want them to stay selfish? If, if, if they've hurt me, do I want them to keep hurting people? 
or do I want better for them? Do I want them to be forgiven? Do I want to encourage them in their repentance? Or do I want to hang on to that? So we've got to get rid of the selfishness that makes us want to not forgive. Now, um, let's talk about the difference between forgiveness and trust. Um, I'll give you a scenario. A young lady has met a young man, and she thinks this is a fine young man. He's a Christian. He's honest. He is, he's devout. Uh, I think he'd be a good father to my children. I love him. Uh, he's, he's interested in me. I'm interested in him. He proposes marriage. She says yes. Then uh, a few weeks before the wedding, a couple of weeks before the wedding, and she's thinking he's so honest, he's so good, he's so reliable. And then her bridesmaid comes to her in, in tears and says, I, I have to tell you, I slept with your boyfriend last night, your fiance. She confronts him and he's caught and he asks for forgiveness. As a Christian, does she have to forgive him? Yeah. As a young lady, considering who's going to be a good choice for the father of her children and who's going to be a reliable spouse, does she have to decide, I'm going to go ahead and marry him? No. No, that's a different choice. That's an option. That's, that's right. Uh, when, we, when we select elders, um, is everybody in a congregation on the same level of reliability and trustworthiness? No. If you've got a fellow who's been an alcoholic and occasionally he goes forward and confesses because he went to a bar and got drunk and he's very sorry and he wants everyone's prayers. And so we're sad that he did that again. And we pray for him and we, and we encourage him to not do that. But are we going to ask him to serve as an elder? No. No. Trust and forgiveness are two different things. Um, so here gets to be very difficult. Suppose in a marriage, trust has been violated. The couple want to preserve the marriage and go forward, but trust has been violated. Somebody asks for forgiveness. What do they need to be given? Forgiveness. Does that mean that trust is automatically there again? No, it's going to take time to rebuild that relationship and to trust them again. So what are some biblical principles that will be important in that? Well, uh, I mean, I think a little bit about Paul and John Mark, where Paul and uh, uh, Barnabas went on the first missionary journey together. And then when it was time to go on the next missionary journey, there was a difference of judgment uh, where Paul said, I don't want to bring John Mark. He deserted us on the first journey and Barnabas wanted to take John Mark along. And so it wasn't that Paul hadn't forgiven John Mark. I, as a Christian, as someone in good standing, Paul says, I lived my life in good conscience. He, he had to have forgiven John Mark for that, but it was in his judgment to say, ah, I'm not going to take John Mark with us on this trip. So they ended up, Paul chose Silas, Barnabas took John Mark, and they went separate ways and perhaps got even more work done that way. But it's interesting that uh, later in like 2 Timothy 4, uh, Paul asks for John Mark. And says he's useful to me for ministry, and so there's a there's a, a, apparently a trust that was rebuilt over time uh, with John Mark. But at the time of the second missionary journey, that trust hadn't been rebuilt at that point. So um, we've had some questions recently 
uh, and I don't remember if this, uh, we've had some questions uh, a few weeks ago where someone talked about they knew various married couples facing challenges. And one of the challenges would be one spouse has been involved in pornography, so the other spouse, you know, finds out about it, is aware of it. How do they rebuild things? So the person who had been, say, involved in the pornography, they apologize to their spouse. They apologize to their spouse. They apologize to God. The Bible says God will forgive them. And what does their spouse need to do? Forgive them. What did they need to, what are some specifics about what they need to do to help build trust? Well, they need to, of course, apologize and make things right, but they need to start living right. Uh, it takes a while of kind of resetting your track record of saying, okay, I, I made the wrong decision on this day, but the more time you put between yourself and that bad decision, uh, the yeah. more you can set the precedent of, okay, I, that was me in the past, but now I'm going to do what's right. So we got about three or four minutes here. Let's hit real quickly some practical things connected with some scriptures. So real concise from Matthew five twenty seven and following. What could they do very practically to help their spouse be able to trust them again? Jesus said, if your eye offends you. measures. Yeah. So, yeah. Caught up in pornography, get rid of a computer, get rid of a yeah. smartphone, get, get rid of access. Just make sure that you're very aware and that your spouse is very aware that you have no intention of allowing yourself any means of access. Uh, and that 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 is is powerful for you and, and your own soul because that's that's the other thing with with forgiveness that needs to be um kind of addressed there are two parties that are involved in forgiveness and each party has their own responsibilities the responsibility of the one being forgiven first yes it, it's good and helpful to be forgiven but you need to realize whether you work that out or not with the other person you're responsible for your soul and so specifically in that situation with pornography, that person needs to first and foremost get the things, the sins out of their life to for their benefit yes. uh, and then start um, working on the relationship there. Um, and so that, that helps you first and then second moves on to the other. Yeah. Part. So if, 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 if a spouse has been for years involved in pornography on their computer and their spouse finds out about it and, and they say, okay, well, I'll, I'll be careful in the future. Forgive me and they keep their computer and they keep their smartphone, well, you're asking for forgiveness, but what help are you giving your wounded spouse as a means to build trust? So you let them see that you cut that off so that they can have a reason to believe you're not doing what you were doing before. Uh, how about patience? Are you going to need to be patient? Yeah. Yeah. How about uh, Philippians 2 where it says, look not to your own things, but to the things of others. Uh, if somebody's cheated on their spouse and, and it's been, and they ask for forgiveness and they're forgiven and they're, they're, uh, trying to go forward. What does he need? If he used to, after work, go meet this other woman, what does he need to start doing now? Go directly home. And if he gets delayed, you know, say like, look, here's a picture of where I'm at. Here's who I'm with. You know, we're in a meeting. Now, he might think, why should I have to? Because I put myself in this situation, and if I'm thinking about the other person, I should want to constantly be giving them reasons to trust me and constantly not wanting to leave them wondering what I'm doing. 
And so to think about what's good for the other person. Uh, and, and that way you can help build trust by making yourself accountable by just thinking about, wow, if that was me, if this was switched around, what would I need? That's what I need to do for them. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And what's interesting, not to, to backtrack too much, but I think this point is, is really powerful. Um, in, uh, in Matthew 18, the unforgiving servant, that parable the amount of money that that first servant owed is said to be 10,000 talents and a talent is 20 years worth of wages. So it's 20,000 years worth of money that this guy owes. And he, what he says to the King in pleading is he says, be patient with me and I will repay you everything. So what he's saying is be patient with me and give me the opportunity to do what is impossible. I I cannot do this. Um, And that's, that's what forgiveness is. It's, it's begging for something that you have no control over and asking for something that you can't give yourself. And you need to be aware of that. And that should humble you to the point to where you make drastic changes. You, you, you throw yourself at the mercy of the other person. And then the other person should realize that that's a gift that first I'm required to give as a Christian, but it, it is an act of mercy. And then going back to, if you show no mercy, no mercy will be shown to you. And the unpayable debt represents our debt to God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can't pay that back. But right. when he gives it to somebody else's debt to us, mm-hmm. that's completely doable. You owe me a hundred shillings. Okay. Give me time. Could he have done that? Yeah. Yeah. He could have done that. But when we refuse to do so on this other level, then this huge debt before God won't be there. All right, anything, any final words before we close out here? No, I think you're good. Good to go. Uh, I want to invite people to go to BibleQuest.tv, uh, fill out the form, send in your questions. You can do that anytime. You don't have to wait till the next program starts, but we will be back again on uh, next Tuesday, Lord willing, at uh, 2 p.m. And uh, guys, I want to thank you very much for your input and your comments and uh, the wisdom that we're grabbing out of the scriptures. Thank you. And we are still looking for questions. If you or others that you know have questions, uh, please always feel free to send those to us. You can send them in at the website, BibleQuest.tv. You can send them in if you comment on uh, one of the links on Facebook um, or if you're in the audience on the the Zoom uh, program, then you can uh, send those in as well. But we'd love to hear from you and uh, have an opportunity to answer your Bible questions. Thanks, guys.